Welcome to special coverage from Vanity Fair's Dynasty. As you've most certainly heard by now, Queen Elizabeth II has passed away. It is an enormous moment. Her reign, spanning more than 70 years, was the longest in British history and covered a remarkable set of transitions in the world. In that time period, the British Empire collapsed. Society in the UK was transformed. There have been multiple technological revolutions, radio, television, the internet, and enormous schisms within the royal family itself, bringing its very existence into question. And yet, through all of it, the monarchy as personified by Queen Elizabeth has held firm as a symbol of power and stability to many people around the world. I'm Katie Nichol. And I'm Erin Vanderhoof. We've both covered the royal family extensively for Vanity Fair and told their stories over 10 episodes here on Dynasty. Today, we're talking just a few hours after the Queen passed. So, Katie, I think the place to start is to talk about her life. She was born before the stock market crashed, uh, before the Great Depression. She lived through, you know, the rise of fascism across European countries. She was a member of the Auxiliary Territorial Service, so she served in World War II. She, when she first became queen, some of the World War II rations were still in place, and that was that was the world that she became the queen into. While she was queen, she saw the first female prime minister in Ma- Margaret Thatcher. How did her personality shape this enormously important span in British history? Well, Erin, I think I can probably sum it up in one word. And that was a word that came up so much when we were making our podcast, Duty, I think from the early days when she was Princess Elizabeth and and then knew that her role one day would be to become Queen of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth, the Queen had an innate understanding not only of who she was, but the role that she would take on. She did that with an absolute commitment to the people of the United Kingdom and the people of the Commonwealth. And when she made that pledge, when she was just 21 years old, a young girl, Speaking for the first time in South Africa, she pledged that her whole life, whether it be long or short, would be devoted to duty. And she did that. I mean, if you think the last photograph of her that was taken just a couple of days ago was her kissing hands or welcoming in the new prime minister, it was duty to the end, duty hours before she finally passed away. What do you think her passing means for the UK itself? It's clearly a moment of great political turmoil. It, things feel so unsettled and it's in the air. How will they and how will you as a citizen mourn and move forward? Well, it is a time of great flux, isn't it? I, I remember speaking to someone who, who said to me, woe betide, we lose the Queen now. You know, we have Russia at war with Ukraine. We're post-Brexit, still trying to find our feet in this really uncertain political climate. We have a new prime minister. We have a cost-of-living crisis. I mean, the UK is not in good shape. And yet, I think with the Queen there as our head of state, there was a sense that 
everything was going to be okay because while the Queen was here and for those record-breaking seven decades that we had her, everything was okay. I, I'm just thinking back, Erin, as, as we're talking to the coronavirus pandemic and, this, and the speech that she delivered to the nation. I hope in the years to come, everyone will be able to take pride in how they responded to this challenge. And those who come after us will say the Britons of this generation were as strong as any. The pride in who we are is not a part of our past. It defines our present and our future. She gave us that assurance. She told us we'd meet again. We should take comfort that while we may have more still to endure, better days will return. We will be with our friends again. We will be with our families again. We will meet again. I think we're all mourning, you know, the grandmother of the nation, however you want to describe her, but that person who was the thread that connected this crazy tapestry that we call life. And so I feel a great sense of loss personally. I feel a great sense of shock and and sadness, sadness for the House of Windsor and the grief that it is going through. Prince Charles has lost both of his parents in 18 months. Um it's 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 going to be a tough time. I I liked that you brought up that speech from the coronavirus pandemic and we'll meet again because I think that that came at a moment when almost nobody knew how to respond to a totally new situation and the thing that the queen realized and you know she has a lot of great speechwriters and a lot of great support around her But the thing that they realize is that, no, we have gone through this moment before. In fact, the Queen's life was shaped by World War II. And I think by making that comparison in a really really thoughtful way, I think it had resonance throughout the world. Like there is no other speech that, you know, at least in – that I was exposed to. So, you know, in the English language that came anywhere close to being that memorable to me or as important. And I think that that speaks to how Americans do – view the queen, that she's a cultural figure primarily. So, you know, I think Charles is really going to, he's going to have a lot to live up to, King Charles now. He is. He is. And we know that he is now going to be known as King Charles III. Um, It was actually the prime minister who who hinted at that in her speech. And that was confirmed, you know, minutes later by Clarence House, because, of course, he could have chosen another name. But I think it was important to him. It is important to him that he is King Charles III, because I think, Erin, what's so important in all of this, and I agree with everything you said, is continuity. We looked to the Queen for continuity. We are proud to be Elizabethans. Um, we, we We are proud to have lived under her reign and to have reaped the benefit of her experience and everything that she lived through and and learnt and passed on to us. And in terms of the next reign um, and what that's going to look like, Erin, you and I spent, I think, most of dynasty, didn't we, reflecting on what this new reign will look like. I've just written a book on what this new reign is going to look like. You know, the new royals, that that is what it's all about. And we've been talking, haven't we, about this this transition of power, this handing over of power in real time. We've seen it. We we witnessed it at the Platinum Jubilee celebrations. We've witnessed it at other key moments too. And I think that I think that Charles is ready for this role. I think he's prepared his entire life has has been preparation for it. He is the longest 
serving Prince of Wales um, over 50 years in training for the top job. And so while his reign will likely be a short reign, certainly in comparison to his mother's, I don't think that means it will necessarily be an ineffective reign. I think Charles is going to want to move quickly, decisively. I mean, I'm told he has the next five years already mapped out. The next five years already mapped out. Yeah. I mean, I do. I think the things that do give me a little bit more optimism is what we've always said this throughout Dynasty. I think the thing that we've come back to a lot um, in talking about the Commonwealth specifically, but also talking about Charles's own passions is just like how much he cares about embracing people of other faiths and a multicultural Britain. And I think that those two things, focusing on that will really, I think, help deal with some of the, you know, emotional frustrations going on. But then, as you mentioned before, there's a historic crisis and, you know, they're, they're just, it's so much more than just feelings. So how do you think that this is going to affect the political side of things? Well, I think, when we're talking about politics and the monarchy, we know that the monarch cannot be political. I mean, of course, there was a time many centuries ago when when the king or queen was a polit- could be a political figure. But you know, I think one of the great successes of Queen Elizabeth II, and there have been many, was that she rose above politics. I mean, she had fifteen prime ministers during her reign. You know, three of whom were women. The first, of course, was Winston Churchill, and so. You know, she she was hugely experienced in politics. She read the papers in her red books right up until her death. I mean, she knew every every government secret. She was abreast of all the legislation. Um, I mean, she was known as reader number one. She she was remarkable in that respect. And yet, we knew very little about her political opinions and about what she really thought about Brexit. Um, she was incredibly careful not to not to give anything away because she knew that being politically neutral was crucial to her success as the monarch. Now, when we look at Charles, we see a Prince of Wales who has been quite political. And I don't know whether that's political with a small P or a big P, but he has certainly taken on political issues. He has lobbied ministers. So I think there is going to be a fundamental shift in all of this. We'll see if Charles in those one-to-one meetings, that's the thing that he's going to be doing. He will sit down next week with the new prime minister. And, you know, he we're in the middle of an energy crisis and he's a person who knows a lot about, you know, at least the future of energy should be green. So we'll see how useful that is. But we'll, no, we won't. We won't see how useful that is. But well, he's, I, th- I think he's going to very much be our, our, king of of climate awareness, uh, our eco-king, our green king, Um, you know, that will see him. I mean, he's doing it because he's passionate about it and he's been passionate about it for many years. I mean, Prince Charles was talking about the dangers of climate change long before the rest of us sort of woke up and smelt the coffee. That is also going to be an important way of him connecting with Gen Z as well, because, you know, inevitably this moment is going to raise questions about the monarchy, the future of the monarchy, the relevance of the monarchy. And there are going to be many people, I think particularly many young people asking, well, what does the monarch actually do? What's the role of of, of the king or, or the queen? And I think climate change and, and everything that, that we know the Prince of Wales is, is passionate about will resonate with that younger generation. And I think in turn, stand him in good stead. 
I, I think that Charles has proven himself just even by picking climate change as the thing he wanted to be associated with. He has proven that he is really that there in terms of being a national sort of motivator or icon, he's going to be really great. But I think the other thing that is really in the air right now is whether the royal family is still going to work as a group of people all representing the interests. And I think Meghan and Harry's outspokenness was something that, you know, could have appealed to young people, but at the same time, it did really go against some of that you know, the fundamental purpose of the monarchy. And, you know, I think the queen really chose, no, you're in or you're out. That's not the kind of change we're going to embrace. But will will Charles have to kind of take a different attitude towards the press? Will he have to become a little bit more unspoken? Or will that be too controversial? Well, I don't know if it'll be controversial, but I think it's quite different to rein back in, isn't it? I mean, it's worth pointing out that the queen has never given an interview we've heard we've heard her voice and we've heard her narrate we heard that most recently on that wonderful documentary that the BBC made to celebrate her 70 years on the throne but she's never sat down and given an interview in the way that Charles has done I mean he has given several and I I think times change the monarchy has has had to move with the times and Charles has you know his aides had realized a while ago that television was going to be a very important medium and you know it is one that that he's embraced and we see William embracing as well so I I don't think we'll see any reining back on that but I I certainly think that now that he is king we will see we will see him far more cautious when when it comes to discussing or getting involved or commentating on anything that might be deemed political. And in fact, Charles himself said in a documentary, a television documentary, um, a sit-down interview to mark his 70th uh, birthday, that he absolutely understood that when he is king, his role and what he is able to say will change. And I, and I think that's what we're going to see. We'll have more in just a moment. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. How how do you are you thinking about the last few months and how the things that have been going on in the family and how the queen has made her wishes clear? Well, I, it's it's been a difficult few months. I mean, it's been a difficult couple of years. You know, I think there was a point when the queen just withdrew from it all, when she just had had enough. She'd had enough of of the scandals. She'd had enough of the feuding. She'd had enough of William and Harry falling out. She'd ha- certainly had enough of Harry and Meghan giving interviews. And um, I, I think there, were, I think she really did near that point towards the end of her life. Just, um, just decide that she'd had enough of it. She, she has taken on multiple roles during her reign. I mean, obviously her role as monarch, but in tandem with that, being a mother, being a wife, being a grandmother, being a great grandmother, and I think family has family is so important. Family was so important 
to the Queen, this whole idea of the modern royal family um, was in part its success. And I think that's that's what you saw today in those images of her family arriving at Balmoral. We knew that Charles and the Duchess of Cornwall were already there, but the way that the Duke of Cambridge hurried to be there, um, we don't know whether he actually got there in time to see his grandmother before she died, um, but he, he, he jumped in the car and drove his uncle, Prince Edward, and, and his wife, Sophie Wessex, to Balmoral. I mean, this was, yes, it was the royal family, but they suddenly felt like a real family. And I think that has that that is at the heart of, of their success and their popularity and why we've dedicated an entire podcast to talking about this dynasty. Um, because at its heart, it it is a it is a family with a monarch at its helm. So you mentioned the Duchess of Cornwall, who you, you know, clearly were speaking about our Queen Consort Camilla. But the one surprise that I was not anticipating is that the Cambridges would be the Duke and Duchess of Cornwall now. Uh, that that was a surprise to me. And, you know, it, it had me thinking about, do we think that today could have possibly changed anything between William and Harry and how they're going to get along? We've already seen them not bury the hatchet in the memory of their mother and their grandfather. Do we think that, that this can make a difference? Well, you have to wonder, don't you, Erin, as they are both at Balmoral tonight, in old bedrooms that they would have slept in as as young boys at the castle where they learned of their mother's death. I mean, this week marks 25 years since the funeral of Princess Diana. And yet, despite that milestone moment, there was no coming together. There was no softening of the rift. They were a few hundred yards away from each other in Windsor and didn't see each other. Now they've been forced together, once again, united in grief, forced together you know, across the Queen's deathbed. Um, if this isn't an opportunity to to thaw these relations and to, and to make some headway, then I I don't know if there ever will be, and um, you know let let's see let's see over the coming days. But um, I do know that it was a source of of great pain and hurt to Her Majesty the Queen that that Harry and William hadn't managed to sort out their problems. And I think as exhausted as she was by the turmoil of all these family scenarios, you know that was that was the one that that really broke her heart actually. So tell me what you do know about the titles. I know Duke and Duchess of Cornwall is now their name on their social media profiles, but you know, what else is going to happen there? Well, they they technically will also become the Prince of Wales and the Princess of Wales. And that is for the the king to hand that title over. Um, of course, the queen bestowed that title on Charles and he was invested at the castle of Carnarvon in Wales. Um, you know, I think it's unlikely we will have a, a similar investiture for William, but I, I have no doubt that he will be um, the Prince of Wales, which of course means um, the Duchess of Cornwall, as she is now known, will will be the Princess of Wales. And, um, you know, no one knows better than Kate that those are very sizable shoes to fill. So with this transition, with, with this change of reign, um, yes, comes a whole issue of titles. And don't forget, Erin, now that Charles is king, this is now the moment that Harry's children, because he is the son of the sovereign, technically should be prince and princess. So Archie can now become Prince Archie and Princess Lilibet. By law, they're entitled to those titles. Whether or not they are bestowed 
well, we have to wait and see. I think that this takes us back to the conversations that we had about the Oprah interview and how that all went down, which was such a a, a, a mess. It's it's hard to know exactly what's what's going to come next with that. You know, ultimately at the end of the day, that decision's up to up to Charles. But and I, everything we know about what he thinks, you know, the the famous memo about the slim down monarchy makes it think like he he isn't going to want that. But you know, who that that's one place where it's just really hard to know what's going to happen in the future. Well, I can tell you, Erin, that I I know that a slim down monarchy is absolutely what. Charles wants and it's also what William wants and I think what's so interesting and what I what I really uncover in in the new royals is just how aligned they are um this notion of sovereignty has absolutely bonded the two of them and they are very much on the same page they're on the same page when it comes to the future of the monarchy the top tier of monarchy um you know how they're going to handle the sort of peripheral royals the Wessexes Princess Anne what roles are there going to be for them you know is Charles's vision of a slim down monarchy to to exclude them from royal duties well we'll have to wait and see but we know that Charles is going to carve out his own reign he is going to want to put his own stamp on being king and we are going to see things done differently I think Charles recognizes as does William that in order for the monarchy to survive. They have to do things differently. This is now the end of the second Elizabethan reign and the start of a new reign. It's going to look different. And I think people don't like change. We don't warm to change. The Queen is all any of us have known. So um, change will happen, but it will happen in a in a very deliberate and carefully choreographed way is, is my is my suspicion. I, I mean, I think that one place where the family has to change, they have really no choice in certain ways, and we just don't know what it's going to look like yet, but is in the, the Commonwealth. I think that that's one place where, you know, William and Kate's tour this spring, you know, doing exactly what the Queen and Prince Philip did, you know, driving around in a military parade, just didn't sit right with the rest of the world. And so they have to start doing things in a different way. And I think the Commonwealth seems like a place where changes are going to be welcome in a certain way. And I'm really curious to see the way that the Commonwealth is going to be welcomed into the morning, but also what Charles is going to is going to do as the like the, the way he's going to be the head of the Commonwealth, which he is now. Mm, and and of course, well, he yes, he he is the head of the Commonwealth. That was that was something else that the Queen put in place before her death. You know, not just the matter of Queen Consort Camilla. It was very important to her that the Commonwealth didn't die with her. That that Charles was the next head of the Commonwealth, and he was unanimously um, voted to to be so. But. Yes, there are definitely challenges ahead. And you point out that that tour of the Caribbean, um, which was not an easy tour for the Cambridges. And, um, you know, the the royals understand that there are going to be, I think, uh, difficult waters to navigate in the future. I think there will be many who feel that that with the Queen's reign, an element of the Commonwealth will die out. It's up to Charles and then William to work out how to breathe new life into it. And um, again, we talk about change, we talk about a new reign. Um, we will we will see evidence of all of this over the coming months and years. I think the Queen's reign in England showed that the hereditary monarchy can be a, you know, financially stable, 
and fun part of a modern democratic society by being as quintessentially British as Paddington and James Bond, uh, as she, you know, showed in the Jubilee and at the um, Olympics 10 years ago, the role of the hereditary monarchy is to to kind of be that person who can serve as the figurehead for a country that is changing every day otherwise. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. And I think you know, Charles also has very big shoes to fill as he mourns the death of his mother and we mark the start of a new reign. I believe he'll work tirelessly because he, he is an incredibly hard worker and the issues that he's campaigned on are issues that he will continue to to campaign for when he is king. But I think beyond that, he believes passionately in in the crown. He believes in the monarchy. He believes that it has a place and a role in modern society. And he's going to show us how. We've discussed some of the longer term issues that King Charles III is going to face. But Katie, what's going to happen over the next couple of days? Well, we will hear the king's speech. We will hear from King Charles III. He will address the nation um, and then he will embark on a mini tour, I suppose, of, um, of the United Kingdom. He will visit Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales. The London Bridge plans have been um, replaced by Operation Unicorn, which are the plans in place should the Queen die in Scotland. And so we will see the Queen um, lying in state in both Edinburgh and in London. She will be moved from Edinburgh to London um, in the coming days with 10 official days of mourning and she will lie in state at Westminster Hall. And um, I think we can expect to see queues snaking through the streets of London as people come to see their queen um, and to pay their respects. And um, I think that is going to be an incredibly moving and um, and poignant sight. I think the the capital will will just come to a standstill for that. Of course, we're going to have a state funeral, Erin, the first state funeral in this country since the funeral of Winston Churchill, the Queen's first prime minister, before she makes her final journey back to Windsor Castle, to St. George's Chapel, where she will be interred in the King George VI vault, along with her beloved Prince Philip, the late Duke of Edinburgh. I'm told there was a reason she didn't want him interred in the vault at his own funeral. He is at St. George's Chapel still. And that was because she knew that she wouldn't be long afterwards and she wanted to be united with the Duke in death and they will be laid to rest in the vault where her father and her mother and her sister also lie. So that will be the Queen's final journey and um, I think we we now prepare ourselves for 10 unprecedented days of, of mourning and coming to terms with the loss of the greatest monarch um, this country has ever seen. Katie, it just hit me. Wow, that the, the tears are coming for the first time. I just, yeah, wow. I mean, the, the, you know, that what the king used to always say is like just us four. And like, you know, she's been separated from her family for so long, you know, living without them. So, wow, that really, that really hit me emotionally. Yeah. It's certainly going to be historic. It's going to be eventful. Um, we will all remember the coming 10 days because in our lifetime, we've never seen anything like it. But I think as 
the United Kingdom as the world comes to terms with the loss of the Platinum Queen, the record-breaking Queen Elizabeth II. This is a moment, yes, to look to the future, but for now, to mourn a remarkable woman, monarch, wife, mother, grandmother, great-grandmother. Of course, thoughts will turn to the future, to many of the themes that we've discussed across the series of Dynasty. But for now, we mourn the life of Queen Elizabeth II. This has been special coverage from Vanity Fair's Dynasty. I'm Katie Nichol. And I'm Erin Vanderhoof. Dynasty is produced by Vanity Fair in partnership with Something Else. This episode was engineered by Dave Gonzalez and the theme song was composed by Wooly Music. Fact-checking was done by Rob Dozier. We had special help today from Pallavi Kodamatsu and TJ Raphael. Dynasty was conceived by Vanity Fair executive editor Claire Howarth. Claire and Katie Rich are staff editorial consultants. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Dynasty on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more Dynasty, visit vf.com dynasty. And you can follow Vanity Fair on Instagram and Twitter at Vanity Fair. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> Thank you.